0: You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. The books of First and Second Kings, although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom. And God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focus on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple, and then in this last section ending with Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile to Babylon. And The story leading up to this tragedy is what makes up the center three sections, which explain how Israel split into two rival kingdoms, how God tried to prevent the corruption of Israel by sending the prophets, and how exile became the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. The book opens with two chapters about the kingdom passing from the aging David to his son Solomon. And David's final words to Solomon, they're very similar to those of Moses and Joshua and Samuel to the people. It's a call to remain faithful to the commands of the covenant and to give allegiance to the God of Israel alone. But David's words ring somewhat hollow here because David and Solomon then go on to conspire how they're going to consolidate this new kingdom through a whole series of political assassinations. It's not off to a great start. Solomon's brightest moment comes when he asks God for wisdom to lead Israel. And he even completes David's dream to make a temple for the God of Israel. Here the story actually stops and describes the design of this temple in detail, just like the tabernacle design in the Torah. There's all these gold and jewels and depictions of angels and fruit trees. It's all symbolism echoing back to the Garden of Eden. It's the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence dwells with his people. But no sooner does Solomon finish the temple that he makes some really horrible choices and the kingdom falls apart. He starts marrying the daughters of other kings, hundreds of them, for political alliances. And then he adopts their gods and introduces the worship of those gods into Israel. Solomon then accumulates huge amounts of wealth. He builds a huge army. He even institutes slave labor for all of his building projects. Now if you go back to the Torah and look at God's guidelines for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon is brave Everyone. So by the time that he dies, Solomon resembles Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, more than he does his father David. The next section of the book opens with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, acting just like his father. It's a very sad story of greed and lust for power. He tries to increase taxes for slave labor. And under the leadership of Jeroboam, the northern tribes reject this. They rebel and secede and form their own rival kingdom. And so now in the story, you have the southern kingdom, Judah, centered in Jerusalem with kings from the line of David. And now this new northern kingdom called Israel, whose capital will be Samaria eventually. Jeroboam also goes on to build two new temples to compete with Solomon's temple in the south. He puts a golden calf in each one to represent the God of Israel. The connection to Exodus 32 and the golden calf, it's all quite explicit. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings. And as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, 0 for 20. And then in southern Judah, only 8 out of 20 get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. The most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. Together these two had instituted the worship of the Canaanite god Baal over Israel. And so in a famous story Elijah challenged 450 prophets of Baal to a contest to see which god was real. So they both built altars and prayed to their gods but only the god of Israel answers with fire. After this, Ahab uses his royal power to murder an Israelite farmer and then steal his family's vineyard. And Elijah again confronts Ahab's injustice and he announces the downfall of his house. Elijah eventually passes the mantle of his prophetic leadership to a young disciple named Elisha who asks for two times the authority of Elijah. And what's fascinating here is how the author, he's recounted seven miraculous feats for Elijah and then he offers stories of 14 Acts of power from Elijah. Both prophets were clearly remarkable men, and they played the same role, confronting Israel's kings for idolatry and injustice, and ultimately they were unsuccessful in turning Israel back from apostasy. In the next section the northern kingdom is rocked by a bloody revolution started by a king named Jehu who destroys Ahab's family and although Jehu was at first commissioned by god his violence just gets out of control and it creates the spiral of political assassinations and rebellions from which israel never recovered coup follows coup after jehu and each king follows other god's allows horrible injustice it all leads up to second kings chapter 17 the big bad empire of Assyria swoops down and takes out the northern kingdom altogether. In the capital city of Samaria, it's conquered and the Israelites are exiled and scattered throughout the ancient world. Now chapter 17 is key. The author stops the story and offers this prophetic reflection on what's just happened. He blames the downfall of the northern kingdom on the idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness of Israel and its kings. And so God has allowed Hmm. them to face the consequences of their decisions. The final movement of the book tells the story of the lone southern kingdom. And here we meet some very heroic kings like Hezekiah who trusts God when the armies of Assyria come knocking on Jerusalem's door. Or Josiah who discovers this lost scroll of the Torah in the temple. So he starts reading it. He's convicted and he institutes religious reforms to remove idolatry and Canaanite influences from the land. But Judah is just too far gone. The king, right in between these two, Manasseh, he's the worst by far. So he not only introduces the worship of idol statues into the Jerusalem temple, he also institutes child sacrifice. And so God sends prophets to say, the time is up, Israel has reached the point of no return. The final chapters tell the story of the Babylonian empire coming to invade Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and carry the people and the royal line of David off into exile. And so the story ends, leaving us wondering, is God done with Israel? Is he done with the line of David? Well, the final paragraph zooms about 40 years forward into the exile, and it tells a very odd story. It's about Yehoi King, a descendant from David, who would have been king if he was back in Jerusalem. And the king of Babylon releases him from prison and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life, and the book ends. So it's not much, but it's a story that gives a glimmer of hope, That God has not abandoned the line of David. So the question now is how is God going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, to David? How is he going to bless the nations and bring the messianic kingdom? And to answer those questions, you have to read on into the wisdom and the prophetic books. But for now, that's the book of Kings.
1: Well, welcome to our new series. For this semester, we're going to be walking through the book of 1 Kings. And so I'm really grateful for those videos. They really give you a big... um, large view of the story of the narrative and where we're going to be going. Sorry about the spoilers. I didn't mean to ruin the ending for you. It's captivating, but please come back even though you know the end of the story. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2. We're going to be looking at uh, where we left off in our last series uh, when we talked about First and Second Samuel. King David's on the throne and he's reigning and ruling over Israel. He's by no means a perfect king. Um, but God has chosen him to lead his people today. We look at first Kings chapter one. As you can see from the text, David is old and dying and he's about to give his final words, his final speech to his son Solomon. And it's kind of a dark story to be honest with you. First Kings one and two is a sad, uh, dark story with a lot of violence and sin and things like that. Um, But in order to understand this, I want to use an illustration this morning. Do we have any uh, chess players in the audience? Anyone who enjoys the game of chess? One. Okay. All right. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Okay. All right. All right. The hands, they were just shy at the beginning. Okay. We're going to use chess as an illustration for this story, and I think it'll make sense, so give me a little bit of time. Okay? Okay. Um, here is what I know about chess, which is not much. Uh, You always get a little dangerous with that. But here, there are two kings, right, chess, two kings, and each king has brought their army to the battle line, right, in order to take down the other king. And then in that, secure themselves as the one true king. Each king makes strategic moves, right, in order to take down the other king. And then ultimately the game ends when one of the kings is trapped and he gives up by announcing checkmate and he topples his king onto the chessboard. I think chess is a decent illustration for what exactly is going on in First Kings chapter 1 and 2. You have two rival kings who want the throne and they're each going to assemble their teams and make strategic moves in order to take over the kingdom. So let that illustration kind of help you see where we're going so in chapter one, we have a sick and dying King David, and we have two potential new kings who are assembling their team and coming to the battle line in order to take out the other king. Each will make strategic moves in order to secure themselves as the next king. But before we look at this chess match in chapters one and two, we need to review what we already know. Here's kind of our overflow or our overview of where we're going to be going today. And I want to start with that first one, the eternal promise. As we enter the narrative in 1 Kings, we have to remember a promise that God has already made to this old and dying King David. If you are new to our church, there is about a year of sermons on the books of 1 and 2 Samuel you need to watch on our website to catch up. So good luck. But it's well worth it. But in, or- in order to keep moving on, uh, let me summarize really quickly what you need to know from our series on First and Second Samuel. David was chosen by God to replace Saul as the king of Israel. That wasn't left up to an election. Saul didn't get to choose who would replace him, nor did the next potential candidate get to fight for the throne. That's not how this went down. God specifically picked David to replace Saul, and this wasn't up for debate. You remember this? Sons of Eli... Um, first, this is told in first Samuel chapter 16, verses 10 through 13, Saul wasn't exactly excited about David replacing him as King, but his son, Jonathan was in full alignment with the plan God had established for who would take the throne. Saul is a great example for us of someone who opposes the plan of God. The plan of God is established. It's told to them. Saul opposes the plan. He's a good example for that. Whereas Jonathan, Saul's son, will be for us a great example of someone who submits to the sovereign plan of God. While David is king, God promises David that he is going to make a kingdom out of his family and that there will be a son of David's that will sit on the throne forever. That's the eternal promise that we need to remember. Second Samuel 7 reads this way, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Hear the promise? David, I'm going to use you. I'm going to bless your family. This king that sits on the throne of Israel will be a descendant of yours forever. But now in 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2, King David is advanced in years. He's dying. And the nation of Israel is worried about who will replace him and take the throne. There are now two potential heirs to the throne. Both are David's sons, so they fulfill the promise, right? Both of these guys are David's sons, but they're by different women, and that'll come into play. The first is Adonijah. Adonijah is the oldest alive son of David. He's the son of Haggith. He's the oldest, right? Probably, that's probably how it worked. Secondly, the other king is Solomon, Solomon is the younger brother of Adonijah, but he is the son of Bathsheba. Remember her story? The question we need to wrestle with is, has God established who will be the next king, like he did with David, or is the throne a vacant position open for the taking? As long as it's the son of David. That's the question we got to wrestle with. Are either one of these men capable to take the throne? So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. Flip back just a couple pages to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Here's a, a word that was given to David about his son Solomon. It says this, Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. And Bathsheba, she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. That verse is a little cryptic, to be honest with you. Probably at first reading, you wouldn't be like, oh, it's so clear, right? Solomon's the next king. But there are some wording in these verses to help us see that that is true. It says that the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet to David. What was that message? We believe it was the message that Solomon would be the next king. And then so he called his name Jedidiah. He was loved by God. There's a special relationship here. For a little bit more clarity, in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, which is a retelling of the books of First um, and Second Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, it says this. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So is it clear who the next king is? Does it seem foggy like it's up for grabs? No, it should be clear that the next king is Solomon. So in order to understand our story today, we need to be clear that the heir to the throne is Solomon because this is the plan of God for his people. Here we go. If anyone else rises up in our story today besides Solomon to take the throne, then we have a problem, right? Because the heir is already clear. So what do you think is going to happen? you think it's going to be beautiful and clean and Solomon's just going to be handed the throne or you think we're going to have a problem? Yeah, we're going to have a problem. All right, so look at 1 Kings chapter 1. I titled this The Continual Problem because the problem we're going to see in Adonijah is a problem we all have. The weaknesses and the flaws in his heart you'll see in your own life. The Continual Problem, chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5. It says in verse 5 we see that things are not going as smoothly as they should. Because verse 5 announces that Adonijah exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Is that a problem? Yes, that's a big problem. Adonijah, the son of David, who would have known how how kings are chosen, decides to position himself as the next king of Israel instead of submitting to the sovereign plan of God, which would have been for him to serve his brother. You can almost hear Adonijah's thoughts, can't you? Like, anyone have brothers, you know, you kind of wrestled with this before. You can almost hear this in Adonijah's thoughts. Why should my little brother be the next king? I'm older, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I'm faster. I'm, gosh, I'm better looking. Dad is sickly and almost dead. I'll just make myself king. I'll throw a big party, make a big announcement. Who's going to stop me? Dad? He can't even keep warm. Like, what's the problem here? I got this. And maybe the question we should wrestle with is, why shouldn't Adonijah be the next king? Verse 6 tells us he's good looking. He's the next in line for the throne. He's the oldest alive son of David. He's proving in verse 6 to be a go-getter. He's proactive. He gets things done. He prepares for himself chariots and horsemen He gets 50 men to run before him to announce his throne. This guy is a natural-born leader. He'd make a great king, right? Well, the reason he shouldn't be the next king is simple. God had already selected the next king. So Adonijah here is revealing his sinful heart by by taking something that isn't his. He's fighting, he's grasping for something that he should never be grasping for that's not his. I love this. It's so ironic. You know what Adonijah's name means? That Adonai should sound familiar. Adonijah means God is master. Isn't that irony? I love that. That's so beautiful. His name literally screamed to him every time he heard it, don't forget who you serve. Don't forget who is in charge. Don't forget your role and your purpose. You serve God. Every time his, name would, his mom would have called his name for dinner, he would have been reminded, God is my master. That's why I'm convinced Adonijah is blatantly going against what he knows to be true and doing something he knows to be wrong. This isn't just him being proactive, being a go-getter, trying to help his nation out. He is rebelling. By making himself the next king, he is rebelling against God. We call that treason. See, go back to our chess match illustration. Adonijah begins a chess match against David and Solomon. A chess match that should have never taken place. And his first move out of the box is to set himself up as a king before anyone has a chance to do anything about it. Boom take that. I'm king. So here we learn, look at verses seven and eight. Here we learn the two teams, the two sides of the chessboard. On team one, we've got King David, Prince Solomon, Queen Bathsheba, and let's not forget who the most powerful piece in the chess match is, the queen. We have Knight Beniah, Nathan the prophet, Zadok the priest, And these people all serve God, the one true king, and his kingdom. They set their agendas aside, serve the God of Israel. On the other team, in the yellow corner, we have Adonijah, the false king, Joab, his knight, Abiathar, his priest, and then just a ton of pawns. That's kind of the other match. Here we see Adonijah setting himself up as king instead of submitting to Israel's one true king. And we even see him throwing a kingly party to honor himself in verse 9 and 10. Kills the fatted calf, throws a party. I'm king. What are you going to do about it? Look at verses 11 through 27. As we continue to move down this chapter, we now see Nathan and Bathsheba make a counter chess move, right? Oh, it's our turn now. Okay, we're going to make a move. This is what they decide to do. Nathan and Bathsheba make a plan to tell the sickly king exactly what Adonijah is doing while David is on his deathbed. They conspire, like, hey, we got to come together. We got to be united on this. Sick, dying David doesn't know about the coup. We need to let him know. Verse 27 says this, Um, we're just curious, David, has the thing been brought about by my Lord, the king, and and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my Lord and the king after him? They're asking him kind of, you know, giving him the benefit of the doubt, maybe like David, just in case you don't know, do you know that there's a huge party going on outside and Adonijah has established himself as king? Are you aware of that? Did you make that call and maybe just not tell us? Like, are you for this plan, or are you... What's the kind of the situation here? They had this plan. They knew what was going on. They were informing the king, who wasn't really doing his job, of what was conspiring. David, are you okay with all this, or were you unaware? All right, the next chess move is King David's. He makes a move. In verses 28 through 40, David then is outraged by this, frustrated that Adonijah would try to steal the throne... He makes a chess move. David then establishes Solomon. He throws his own party. David then establishes Solomon as king before the people and throws his own party. While Adonijah and his team are at their party. Literally, there's two banquets going on and each banquet is announcing the next king. King Adonijah, serve and worship him. King Solomon, he's our king. Serve and worship him. Two parties are out cheering each other, out celebrating each other. So while is at his party eating and being praised, he hears the noise of another party. A um, representative comes to Adonijah and tells him, you know what that loud noise is that's louder than your party? That's David setting Solomon up as the next king. You're in trouble, buddy. Adonijah hears the celebration of David making Solomon king. He's greatly afraid. Oh, no. I guess dad's not dead yet. I guess he's still got a little power. I guess he's still able to do something about this. But before we move on to our story, I want to ask this question. What caused Adonijah to start this act of treason? Why? What was in his heart? What's going on? See, we understand this treason wasn't just against David. It was more importantly against God. He was stealing the throne from God. From God's plan, what can we learn from chapter 1? So let's look at Adonijah's heart and see if there are similarities in our own heart, okay? So you see, I think Adonijah wanted, he wanted the king, he he wanted the title as king more than he wanted a relationship with the king. He didn't care about dad. He didn't care about his brother. He wanted a title. The title was more important than relationship. See, I also think Adonijah wanted power more than he wanted to be in the presence of power. It was about him. Give me the power. I don't want to worship. I don't want to serve. I want power. I think Adonijah also wanted to be the object of praise more than he wanted to know someone worthy of praise. He didn't want to bow down. He didn't want to submit. He didn't want to sing. He didn't want to worship someone. He wanted all that affection pointed towards him and lastly i think adonijah wanted his kingdom to come rather than god's kingdom to come so as i listed those any of those things sound familiar to your own heart guilty any of those sound a little bit like you i think they do in my own heart if i'm being honest then if that's true then you and I should do exactly what Adonijah did next. Follow the story along. What does Adonijah do next? Found guilty? He runs for mercy. Look at the responses. What do the people do when they hear about this other party announcing Solomon as king? The people run for their lives. The pawns get out of there. Oh, this isn't a fight we want. We are out of here. Let's go hide. But then notice what Adonijah does. He runs but he does something a little bit different than the pawns. Adonijah runs for mercy. Adonijah understands that what he has just done is a capital offense where the punishment is his life. His life is he's done. He's going to die for this. And so what does he do? He runs to a place where mercy is sometimes granted. Notice the story. It says this. And Adonijah runs to the horns of the altar in the tabernacle. The horns of the altar in the tabernacle were a pla- was a place where if you accidentally killed somebody, maybe it was a farming accident or something like that, if somebody died and it was on your watch, you could run to the horns of the altar and there would be mercy there. It was a mistake. Adonijah knows that there's sometimes mercy is granted at the horns of the altar and he runs there hoping to find mercy. This is the place where sometimes mercy was granted, and we'll see David's response. Sorry, Solomon's response in verses 52 and 53. What does does Solomon do? He shows Adonijah mercy, but it's mercy with a condition, isn't it? Look at verse 52. Adonijah, if if you will show yourself a worthy man, not one of your hairs shall fall on the earth. But if wickedness is found in you, you'll die. I'll give you a second chance. I'll give you some mercy, but with a condition. You messed up. You're my brother. I'll I'll give you a second chance, okay? I'll give you some mercy. So if Adonijah will repent and serve the king, let him live. I will forgive his trespasses and restore the privileges he once had. Wow, what a a generous and, and kind Solomon. Allows his brother some mercy. But if he continues to fight this battle, if he continues this chess match, if I see wickedness in his heart, if I see strategic moves to continue to take over the throne, he's dead. Literally, repent or die, Adonijah. Bow and worship and serve or off with your head. In chess, there are times when one king is in check. You familiar with that? And it's at this moment, the king has to do something. You can't position other guys. The king has to do something. He can either end the game, topple his guy, and the game is over, right? Or he can run and hide. He can figure out a way to get out of this. He can figure out a way to position himself in order to let the game continue. This is kind of what's going on with Adonijah. If he'll humble himself, repent, and serve the one true king, then he would live. But if he persists and continues the match, he'll die. What do you think he's going to do? We'll find out. Our role is, here's our purpose. Chapter one, summary of chapter one. Our role is to submit to the king. If we won't submit, we will one day by force submit. Philippians 2 says this. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, what's our response as sons and daughters of the King? We live for his rule, his reign, and his glory instead of our own. That's where chapter one ends. What are you going to do? You're going to submit? You're going to obey? You're going to worship the King? Or off with your head? So, let's look at chapter two. Chapter 2, I've titled The Necessary Punishment. So now we have the true and right king. He's on the throne. He's been announced. He's been established. But how will Adonijah respond? That's kind of what we're curious about. Here we read with anticipation to see if he will show himself to be a worthy man or if we will see wickedness inside of him. Curious to see what happens. Chapter 2, The Necessary Punishment. Before we move on, quick question for you. What is the appropriate punishment for treason? What's the appropriate punishment for trying to steal the throne from a king? What usually happens? It's death, right? We understand that. It's death. You try to take down the king, that's your life. This chapter will seem very intense. It's a bloody, violent chapter. It'll sound weird and hard to understand, if we forget the due punishment for treason. If we understand that the punishment for treason, for sin, is death, chapter 2 makes sense. All right, so let's move on to David's last words. Here we have two separate categories in chapter 1. We have verses 1 through 4, which is David's personal address to Solomon. And in this, he pretty much says, Solomon, the greatest thing you can do as the next king is to obey your king. And love him with all your heart and soul. David points Solomon towards faithfulness and godly living. Solomon, be a man after God's own heart, like I tried to be. That's what makes a great king. Serve the greater king, O King Solomon. Realize you're not in charge, there's another king you serve. Then verses 5 through 7 is interesting. It's more of a state of the union address to Solomon. Here, David is telling Solomon some things he needs to know about the kingdom. There are some that oppose your kingdom, Solomon, and you're going to have to deal with them. Seek vengeance on those who worked against the kingdom in order to secure the safety of Israel. You see, there are a few you're going to have to deal with but do it according to your wisdom. He says that a couple times. And then in in the story, he says, there's going to be some I want you to grant mercy to, and there's some I want you to pour justice upon. I think this is really interesting, verses 5 through 9. Some theologians and pastors wrestle with whether or not verses 5 through 9 are godly advice or not. Some say verses 1 through 4 are spirit-led, and where verses 5 through 9 are selfishly led or carnal. You might have even picked that up in the video we showed. He kind of says, "Ah, David kind of loses it at his last breath. And I think I disagree with that. I think I hold to the position that both verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 through 9 are godly advice. Three reasons why I believe verses 5 through 9 are godly advice to Solomon at that specific time. I do not believe that these verses 5 through 9 should be applied today. Kill those who oppose Christ. I don't believe that. But I also don't believe it's fair to say that David just lost his temper in his last breath. He tells his son. Why? First reason? It's because he tells his son to act according to his wisdom. Solomon, you're going to have to figure this out. You're going to have to use your wisdom. He doesn't tell Solomon to act according to his anger or a, hey, uh, I just need a favor, son. Help your old man out with one last thing. No, he says, here are a few potential dangers to the kingdom. Note, and then notice that out of the three cases that David brings up, the first is justice, but the second is mercy. He tells him to grant mercy. And then the third is justice. So it's not just a hit list. He doesn't just slip him a list of, hey, these guys could be dead. That would be great. It's not what this is. Number two reason I think it's godly advice is because Jesus said in Matthew twelve that a nation divided cannot stand. You see, he says in Matthew twelve that every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Matthew twelve twenty five. David knew that if Israel is divided in its loyalty, it will fail. Those who oppose the king must be dealt with or the whole kingdom will fall. And this is exactly what ultimately happens in Israel after Solomon dies. And his son Rehoboam takes the throne. Rehoboam is a bad king. He leads poorly. Instead of pointing Israel towards godly living or dealing with sin or idols, he, almost, he institutes idol worship. And because of his leadership, Rehoboam, and a divided kingdom, the whole kingdom falls. It divides. Third reason I think verses 5 through 9 are good advice is because this plan in verses 5 through 9, in my opinion, is not contradictory to verses 1 through 4. On the contrary, I think verses 5 through 9 accomplish what he says in verse 4. So let's look real quick at the final verse of chapter 2. Look at the final verse of chapter 2. It says this. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. What will happen in chapter 2 is Solomon will go on to act according to his wisdom, and the nation is blessed because of it. Now, prosperity does not always signify godly living, but these verses seem to fulfill verse 4 if your sons pay close attention to their walk and they walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And that is exactly how chapter two ends. Verse four is fulfilled in verse 46 of chapter two. But let's keep moving on. We gotta keep moving on. Look at verses 10 through 12. David here dies. He breathes his last. He's buried. And Solomon reigns. Verses 13 through 46 is bad news. The chess match continues. We're going to start to see what Adonijah does after being warned in the last verses of chapter 1. Solomon begins to obey David's charge to him in verses 5 through 9. All four characters in chapter 2, if you'll notice there's four different sections, all four characters receive some form of justice from Solomon but the justice is according to Solomon's wisdom. So I'm going to call these uh, scenes, okay? So the first scene is Act 2, Scene 1. We're going to learn about Adonijah. What's he going to do? Now we have king versus king in the chess match. They're going to battle it out, okay? Here we find out what Adonijah does. Adonijah, it's kind of a weird story. Adonijah goes to his mom and says, or not his mom, he goes to Bathsheba and says, Bathsheba, do me a favor. Go to uh, Solomon and ask Solomon if I can have Abishag. I kind of skipped that section. Abishag was the woman that David hired at the very beginning to keep him warm. Okay? And so Adonijah asks for Abishag. It's weird, isn't it? Why? Well, it seems innocent enough, right? Abishag is now a widow or whatever she is. And she's now without a king. She's not with David anymore. And she needs a new husband, Right? But what Solomon knows by this request is that this isn't a charity case. Adonijah isn't looking out for Abishag. It's a power play. It's a chess move. Because look at Solomon's response. He pretty much says to Bathsheba, Wow, mom, uh, did he also ask you for the whole kingdom? Did he also say, uh, while you're at it, just give me the throne? Right? That's kind of his response. He sees right through it. Like, why, didn't, why don't we just give him everything? If we're going to give him the, the wife of the king, we might as well give him the throne. See, David had another son who did something very similar. He went to the roof where David would live, and he had relationships with all the king's concubines as a power play to say, look who's in charge. Adonijah's doing the exact same thing. Solomon sees this as an act of treason, viewing this as Adonijah revealing the wickedness that is still in his heart. And Solomon has Adonijah killed by his knight, Benaiah. Verses 26 and 27, act two, scene two, Abiathar. Solomon here is merciful to Abiathar the priest, but he takes away his role as priest to Israel. Solomon spares Abiathar's life, but takes away his spiritual duty and influence. You can live, but you're no longer fit for this role. Act 2, scene 3, is verses 28 to 35. Here Solomon brings down justice on the violent Joab, just as David commanded. Because of his murders, his innocent murders, on, in, uh, murders of innocent people in 2 Samuel. Here, Joab has a very interesting response, if you're looking at the verses. Joab runs for mercy, just like Adonijah did. Joab clings to the horns of the altar, just as Adonijah did, thinking he will receive mercy. Solomon's going to kill him. I'll run for mercy. What's Solomon going to do? But this time, the horns of the altar bring no mercy. Benaiah strikes again. All right. Act 2, scene 4. Shammai or Shammai or whatever. Verses 36 through 45. Act 2, scene 4. Solomon grants mercy to Shemai with a condition. He says, Shammai, you may build a house in Jerusalem, but you can never leave it. You may have asylum in Jerusalem or house arrest, but the moment you leave, you're dead. The moment you break the rule, my mercy will come to an end. I'm giving you a second chance, but that's it. I'm going to give you mercy. Shemai one day, years later, decides he needs to go chase down a servant that has ran away. Shammai chases after the servant. His, Solomon's mercy is broken, and Beniah strikes again. Don't mess with Beniah. So, th- something we need to wrestle with. You see, chapter 2 is this bloody, violent, destructive chapter. And maybe this question is coming to your mind. Are these acts of justice fair? And when you ask that question, like, man, how do I wrestle with chapter 2? Am I okay with all this death and destruction that happens in chapter 2? Then maybe you're led to ask this question. Is the Bible fair? Is God fair? What do I do with all this? Am I okay with this? Sometimes we insert that, right? Am I okay with this? I don't really like this Beniah dude and Solomon seems. Am I okay with this? Is the Bible fair? Is God fair? My answer to that question is: is God fair? Yes. Here, these men are getting what they deserve: justice. Think back real quick to first and second Samuel. Whenever there was a war and Israel was victorious over another nation and lots of people died, there isn't any mourning over the enemies of Israel. Why? Because we view them as enemies of God who are getting what they deserve, justice. And as harsh as this sounds, we must understand that since Genesis chapter 3, the punishment for sin has always been death. But many times we get this confused because we often see the mercy of God on people's lives. And then we sometimes assume, doesn't everyone deserve this same mercy? Romans chapter 2, 4 says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We forget what the purpose of his mercy is. He doesn't just let people off, right? Like, oh, you're free, do what your thing is. No, his mercy was always meant to lead to repentance, to joining his team, To being one of his servants. See, here's the, I I hope you don't miss this. The moment we think people deserve mercy, you have failed to understand mercy. You've lost your dictionary. Mercy's never deserved. That doesn't make sense. Because what is justice? Getting what you deserve. What is mercy? Not getting what you deserve. And what's grace? Getting something you did not deserve. Please don't mix those up. I think we miss the gospel if we miss those up. All right, let's look at the final verse of chapter 2. The promise fulfilled. So throughout chapter 2, Solomon passes out mercy and judgment according to his wisdom. And what are the results? Number one, his kingdom is established. That is what it took for the kingdom to be secured. Number two, God's man is now sitting on the throne of Israel. God won. God's plan was accomplished. And then thirdly, God's promise made to David is continuing. Your son will sit on the throne of Israel forever, which is a promise of a Messiah that will eventually come. Verse 46, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon, and it is through those acts in chapter 2 of justice that the kingdom is established. So real quick, how do we wrap all this up, summarize it? Here's our take-home truth for today. Self-centered ambition always leads to disaster, whereas submission to God's revealed will always leads to blessing. We need to make sure we understand what blessing is, but that's a great take-home truth. Just before I wrap up and we conclude and we take communion and worship a little bit more, I, wanna, I want you to wrestle with two questions. Now I'm done. Would you mind just, after all you've heard, this long narrative, can we boil it down and can I ask you two questions to wrestle with that every single person in this room needs to wrestle with, including myself? Number one, which team are you on? I use this chess match illustration today. And as you think through all the characters in our story, and then you ask yourself, like, where am I? How do I fit in this story? How does this make sense to me? The question you need to wrestle with is which team are you on? Are you on God's team, or are you on? Are you an enemy of God's? Maybe here's a better question to wrestle with. Today, this year, whose kingdom are you building? That helps you know which team you're on. Are you building God's kingdom, or are you building your own? Because those are really the only two options. Either I am for the kingdom of God, and his purposes and his plan, or I am on my team, Team Travis, Building my kingdom and building my plans and bringing myself fame. Those are the only two options. Am I and are you working hard every day to make much of Christ or to make much of yourself and the perfect life you're trying to provide for yourself and your family? Tough question. See, here's the reality. All of us are either soldiers and servants of God or enemies of god no middle ground no switzerland you're either for god his purpose his plan or you're for you enemies of god that's tough james 4:4 4, 4 says this you adulteresses do you not know that fellowship with the world is hostility toward god therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's not like I have one foot on each team, right? No, Sunday mornings, I love God. Monday through Thursday, Friday, you know, I'm kind of on Team Travis, but no middle ground. Either I'm for God or I'm an enemy of God, an adulteress. So where do you fall? And the tricky part about this is that many times we fool ourselves and believe that we are on one team— when we really are on the other team. So to say this a little bit more theologically, you are either a forgiven, adopted son or daughter of God, or you're an enemy of God. Which side are you on? It should be a little bit clear now. Are you building his kingdom? Are you building your own. Which team are you on? The second question I want you to wrestle with as I conclude today is, okay, so we're, All of us at one point in time were enemies of God, right? 100% of this room, the day you were born, you were born an enemy of God, right? Theologically, we believe that. None of us were born saved. God saved you, right? So all of us were born enemies of God, 100%. So the question we all have to wrestle with is is there mercy for enemies of God? What if I am an enemy of God? Am I done? Off with my head? Is there anywhere to run for mercy? In our story today, we are told of many men who received justice for opposing the kingdom. You sin, the punishment is death. We're also told of a few characters who received mercy because of things they'd done in their past, that they granted them mercy. But there's these two odd characters in our story today, Adonijah and Joab, who when desperate for mercy, run to the horns of the altar hoping that in the tent where God resides, they would find mercy. But as the story tells us, that is not where mercy is found. So where, if it's not the tent, it's not where God resides, where is mercy found? You see, what Job and Adonijah believed wrongly was that mercy is found in religion or religious observance, the horns of the altar. And no religious observance can save us or them from the wrath of God. Church is awesome. Religion is great. But it's not saving. There's a savior who's saving, not religion. Adonijah and Joab also wrongly believed that if they ran to an item, they would be saved instead of running to a person. They ran to an altar. And lastly, Adonijah and Joab believed That an image of a substitute, that ram with the horns, they believed that an image of a substitute would save them when only a true substitute could save them. They replaced a created thing for the creator himself. Romans 5.10 says this, For if while we were enemies, all of us, we were reconciled to God, how? Through the death of his Son, Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You're not saved by an element. You're not saved by church attendance. You're saved by a savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that today as we look at our text and respond, that we would see maybe the wickedness in our hearts of how many, so many times we build our own kingdom instead of God's. And then when we view ourselves adequately as enemies of God, we would run for mercy to the only place where mercy is found, the person and work of
0: Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward sermons. Thanks for listening.